like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is the podcast that has been created to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you're listening from today, I want to say thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being part of the journey. My name's Paul Joy, and as the host, it is my privilege to sit down with a yog, a Yarra old grammarian, to track the challenges, the twists and the turns of their journey at school and to see where life has taken them beyond. This week, we'll sit down with Joe Linney Barber from the class of 1981. This conversation with Joe is fascinating. His wisdom, his expertise, his willingness to work hard, to learn lots, and then to try, to put it into action, to have a go. This conversation leads us down a variety of interesting paths, some new insights, some fresh understanding, some helpful perspective. I'm gonna begin by asking him when did your Yarra journey begin? It actually started prep one. So uh, I had two older brothers that also went through. And I think my oldest brother was one of the second or third year cohorts when the school first started. Wow. And, and I don't know, can you remember much about those really early days in junior school? Yeah, I can. I can remember quite a few. You know, I remember the deaf unit. Um and a lot of interactions and also you know my full name is Jonathan as I as I mentioned before and I can remember the the prep two or three year where my name suddenly changed to Joe and it was simply because I couldn't spell Jonathan I couldn't get it right it was too long a name uh, there were too many Johns so the teacher said pick Joe for me and that that continued and I've got a very vivid memory of that sort of period of time um, and it was interesting, I looked at the school map the other day um, uh, on Google because you don't have one on the website, unfortunately, but uh, there's more than 60% of the current buildings weren't there when I was at first at school. Absolutely. Things are changing all the time. And, and oh, rapidly. In, in a school like ours, that's a good thing. That's a good sign that things are changing. Um, but equally, it's helpful for us to to step back every now and then and remember how it once was. And I wonder if you can comment on the ovals because we we are very blessed with uh, lots of room here at, uh, at Yarra. Do you remember much playing out on the ovals, whether it was through your later junior school years or even into middle and secondary school? Did you, you know, did you enjoy it out on the sports fields? Were they muddy? Were they, were they picturesque? What was it like out there? Oh, look, I was a sports fanatic, cricket, football, traditional, um, absolutely fanatical. So the ovals were really part of my life. Um, I had a short stint of tennis and the original tennis courts were right up the back now where I think there's a science lab or something there and they're down on the oval. There were originally three footy ovals. The only hockey ground was down where I think the uh, Saddler Swim Centre is now and that was a very wet, muddy uh, marsh of a, of a hockey ground. Um, and I remember the main oval was always sort of as a junior 
was always that sort of aspirational, I'm going to play on there one day. It's almost like going to Lords, you know, was to play on, on the main oval. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I lived that whole period down on the oval, every, every recess, every lunchtime, before school, after school, it was always on the oval. Yeah, that, and, and such rich memories. And, and what, what was it? Was it kick to kick in those days? Was it markers up? Or do you, was it a, a game of footy and you could tackle each other at lunchtime? Oh, look, it varied. Most of it was kick to kick, but then we'd occasionally do a sort of touch, a, a hybrid touch footy. Um, if it was cricket, it was in the nets um, and everyone got a certain period of time um, to bat. Uh, it was just any sort of sport on the oval. Often it was, uh, uh, there was a period I remember playing a lot of medicine ball style stuff. Um, what are they called? Dodgeball type stuff with a tennis ball, you know, and that got banned, I remember, because there were too many injuries. Uh, someone, someone got hit in the eye or something or other. But, you know, the, the things we used to do was, uh, you know, you'd never get away with now. But the, the thing I found the most uh, rewarding was the, all the sporting ovals at the school. And it was a core principle that we selected a school for our kids um, was that they didn't have to get carted around. They didn't have to get traipsed all over the place. Every, all the facilities were on the one campus. And that's a very important thing because uh, the familiarity in moving from junior to middle to senior, or in our my day it was just junior and senior, there was no concept of middle school, but that familiarity of moving into year seven, being the, you know, the youngest now, and there was still that familiarity. You knew where everything was. There was not that nervousness, the, the drive, and all the sports facilities there. I think that was such an important we were very, very lucky at Yarra Valley, extremely lucky to have that. That's a, a, a great memory, and I appreciate that you understood the enormity of the transition from, from junior school into secondary school, so for you from year six into year seven. Now, nowadays, we have probably a, only a third of our year seven students come from our junior school, and then two-thirds of our year seven cohort come from outside of the school, and they begin their journey at year seven, do you remember much about new people coming into your school when uh, at year seven? What was that like? Yeah, it was. It was almost a doubling, I think, at my in my time, and it was quite. There, there was a lot of segregation, so it was all the uh, the original class moving up. Um, we all stuck to our guard. We had our friends there, everything else, and social groups formed on two sides: the new students and the old students. By year eight or nine, that tended to blend a bit more. Um, the other big memory was that uh, I think I was in year eight when we when the school went co-ed. So suddenly in years 11 and 12 only, there were, I think, nine girls across the two years, uh, and it was just a shock, mm. you know, having been uh, uh, for whatever period, you know, nine years in a boys-only school, it was... It was quite a change and a and a distraction. Yes, <laughs> it, it certainly changed the dynamics, and and I imagine at those year levels, the the year elevens and year twelves, where where girls initially started, and gradually it became something that's like now is very normal. It's just the way it it feels like it ought to be, and uh, but I appreciate living it in the moment was was quite a change, and um, I wonder, do you recall any? conversation at, at home about, well, hang on, this is not what we signed up for. We we deliberately and intentionally went to a boys' school and now all of a sudden the school have changed that. 
or was it accepted and, and yeah, this is just the way we're going, let's get on with it? Oh, look, I, I can't recall any conversation around it. I think the year that it impacted me probably most was moving into year 11. Um, and at the time, it was really the only school out that way for us. My parents lived in Ringwood. There wasn't a lot of choice. Um, they were fairly liberal-minded in that respect. There was, I, I can't recall any negativity at all. And then year 12, I actually did living away from home. So I left home at 17 um, and did year, put myself through year 12. Okay. Now there's a story there. Can you expand on this? So as in you've done year 11 at Yarra Valley Grammar, you did year 12 at Yarra Valley Grammar. Yarra Valley. But yeah. you're no longer living at home. But no, I moved out of home. Wow. Okay. What? Yeah, no one knew. No one knew. Um, it was something I had to keep very quiet. Right. Um, I was actually living with one of my older brother's friends who had a spare room. So I did year 12 with a mattress on the floor and uh, my, my desk was a bit of timber on the, on some bricks and uh, ba- basically uh, did year 12 that way. Now that takes some drive, some determination, some real discipline, some self-discipline. What was it about your character or, or maybe your education that that led you to keep hanging in there, to keep doing, presumably do your best and want to achieve, even though it sounds like the, the home situation wasn't ideal? Look, I think the I was, I was blessed that I enjoyed IT and computers and those sorts of things. And very, very lucky that Yarra Valley, I think, was one of the first schools in the country to get a computer centre as such. And, you know, there were two passions that I had. One was computers and technology and the other was sports. And I was in my element with both. You've got them both. Um, Yeah. So when I ended up doing applied science at RMIT, the first two years I'd already done at Yarra Valley. And it it was very, very straightforward. And I was also lucky that you know, I had a reasonable aptitude for most of the sciences. So it was, and and living away from home, I had nothing else to do except study. So it was fairly easy or go running or play cricket or play footy. So um, it was actually, you know, I don't have any negative memories about it. It was it was quite, uh, quite an enjoyable period. And what about cooking and cleaning and things like that? Because there's not too many 17, 18-year-old people, whether they be male or female, who are that interested in uh, looking after those sides of the reality of living. How did you go with that? Or was it a bit of a, a all hands on deck around the home? No, I think the uh, he, the, the fellow I was staying with uh, had a cleaner, um, which was fine. Um, but I also found out years later, my mother would actually drop all the food off most weeks to uh, to, to Daryl. And um, so it looked like he was cooking, but he wasn't, you know. So... Um, it was a very strange arrangement. It was simply that the, the main motivation was the house was very small. There were four brothers or three brothers in there, four of us. It was impossible to study um, chaos around the house. So I said, look, I'm going to move out. But they fully supported every aspect. Right, yes. So it was yes. nowhere near as challenging. But, you know, I found that the, the, the immersion in computing and sport were my saviour for that year. Yes. And there's no doubt that having a passion and being able to identify that passion really while you're relatively young is is good because you, you feel like you've got somewhere to commit your time and your energy and, and it's something that, that draws you in. And, and both of those pursuits, both 
the, the physical activity and, and sport, you can always get better at that. And technology and, and digital technology is an area that just continues to grow and, and expand. And, and there's always going to be something you can learn in that field as well. So you picked two really large but useful uh, topics to be interested and passionate about. Um, I wonder if you can talk more generally about your, I guess, the academic foundation. You, you mentioned some aptitude, but you've got a, an inclination towards sport and, and activity and also computing. But but what about writing or, or drama or were you in the art room? Did you hang out um, in the library a lot or would we never see you in a place like that? I can't recall where the library was. Um, I can, but... Uh, I had a I had a real mixed bag, so I was very uh, and maybe I followed my brother's footsteps, but it was all academic. It was all sciences, um, no humani- humanities side. Um, I do remember learning Indonesian. I can still recall some of it today, and learning a bit of German. Um, but really, it was all the sciences. But then in year nine or no, it was year ten. I got a real thing for the arts. And so in year 12, I actually did one of the graphic art subjects or a couple of graphic art subjects. And when I got into university, it was actually industrial design. And I was there three months and realised that it was, I think the first thing I did was look in the paper how much they're being paid versus computing. And I switched over to applied science within three months. But I had a mixed bag. So I had the deep sporting side. the academic wasn't overly challenging because the family environment was very uh, strong academically, always had been. Uh, and then I went into the graphic design and found that fascinating and, and really enjoyed that. And I play all those three types of things now. Yeah. So you touched briefly on on life after Yarra and, and you started a course and then decided fairly quickly. And back in those days, was that a big deal to try and change? Did you, did you move straight into a new course or did you have to wait for the end of the semester before you could sort of join into something else or, or what was what was that experience like did you travel b- before you started your course or did you just get straight into it straight out of school no, just straight out of school straight into it um and the transition was not it was about three months in four months in so i started the the second semester uh with the new course but being uh, an applied science degree is, uh, or computer science, applied science. I think it was only the second year they'd offered it. Most of the first semester subjects were the same as the arts courses. So I got enough credits across every subject that I could go straight into second year. So the year I started university uh, in 82, you know, desktop computers still didn't exist. Right. Um, there were things like the uh, the old Apple E or the Apple IIe, yeah. but... And the other advantage I had was my brother and father had a computer company, so selling those things. So I had them at home early. I had access to them early. When I went to university, most of it was very familiar knowledge. In fact, Yarra Valley taught me far exceeding into about halfway through second year uni um, in terms of my skills and knowledge, and I kept up the sports as well. Fantastic. So tell me then, what did that applied science in computing, where did that lead? Was that you had an, an aim for a particular job and you came out with a, a almost a, a ticket to, to a particular role or was it still a bit of let's kind of see where this ends up? 
That, that's interesting. In second year uni, I started uh, my own business. I was selling PCs in a Beckett Street. Um, I was hiring some of the lecturers to help part-time in build uh, a video library system or these sorts of things. Um, I think in third year uni, I attended one class, but because most of the lecturers were assisting in that business, it was fine. Um, I ended up selling that business to three of the professors who kept it going. Uh, I then lasted in programming about three months and realised... I wasn't that good at it or I just didn't enjoy it. So I founded it a separate business. Um, and ever since then, I've had, uh, apart from a couple of stints, I've had my own startups. I've had 14 startups. I've been in you know Silicon Valley, New York, London. Uh, I've got a business in Singapore, um, uh, Malaysia. And it's all about that entrepreneurialism side. Uh, and I exited one about uh, 2015 and been advising the federal government on commercialization, uh, grants programs. But I've just got back into startups. So I've started another three recently. But I think the, the thing with Yarra Valley was that, uh, and there's a quote, and I, I'm trying to remember the, the proper name of the maths teacher, but we called him Bluey. So he looked like that actor off uh, TV. But it was always, if it is to be, it is up to me. And it's, it's a reasonably famous quote, but I remember him talking about, I was struggling with some maths issue and I kept saying, can you hear you? He goes, if it is to be, it is up to me. Go and read, go and learn. It's, it's one of those things, just rote learning. There's no logic science that you can apply. It's rote learning, integrals and these sorts of things with applied maths. But that stuck by me a lot, um, that one phrase, because it's... I never hold anyone else to account for my own issues or failures um, and I don't look to others to make my success. So I've been very, very driven to start companies, sell them, turn them over, do that sort of stuff. Um, and that started second year uni. Wow. Speaking with Joe Linney Barber from the class of 1981 and Joe, I wonder if you, in looking back at those startups as you, you refer to them, is there a, a common thread to... Or is it the, the idea of starting a business that attracted you? Or is there a, are they all to do with computer science? Are they all to do with technology? Is there a, a theme through the businesses that you've started? Oh, they're always, they all except one have a thread of technology, except two actually have a thread of technology. Um, so it's about identifying a need or a gap in the market, resolving in my own head how I could solve or fix that and fill that gap, doing a bit of market research to assess you know, how big's the market demand, and then finding a business partner. So I've always had uh, partners in my business, um, which I think makes a huge difference to a startup. And then we'd either bootstrap it, uh, put it on credit card, which we did a few times, uh, or raise some family money or friends money, that type of thing to get it going. But it's always had a technology stream and it's always come from my own experiences. So it's not about sitting around, uh, you know, the pub with a few blokes and, uh, and a beer and saying, let's come up with a good idea. It's always about my own experiences where I felt something could be achieved a little bit better or this could be improved, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so they've been, you know, telcos. We had uh, a telco business running throughout the Pacific. So we partnered with Digicel. We're in Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, uh, etc. Um, I've had businesses doing uh, web acceleration, website design, I had a systems integrator um, 
that did high-end communications, video conferencing systems in the sort of late 90s. And in 95, I founded Planet Internet, which was uh, the country's second internet service provider. So we were doing dial-up accounts with 300 board modems and, uh, you know, it was very, very early days of the internet. Our only other competitor was Aussie Mail. Um, and, uh, you know, we ended up selling that business to, uh, to another internet provider. But it's always had a tech theme and it's always come out of necessity rather than just some sort of uh, concept or idea out of the top of the head. So is it... Is it business? Is it a business decision to decide we're going to stop this or we're going to sell it on to somebody else? We're going to take what we earned out of it and then put it into something else? Or is it, is it that the idea you decide hasn't got enough life left? We've kind of got everything out of it we can and so we, it's time to move on. Or is it your personality that says, right, I've solved that one. Give me the next problem. I'll go and solve something Dad. else. It's very much like that, the challenge. So one of the things that I'm very good at is that innovating starting and the, it's almost like Taz Devilant. It's an example I use for the MBA students on the entrepreneurialism course is that, you know, Taz Devil where he's spinning in a circle and there's absolute chaos around him. That's what a founder or a startup is like. But for a business to succeed and grow, once you start attaining clients, you really need to be that structured, organised uh, very, very diligent. You need processes, procedures, and I hate all of those. Right. So one of the, the key criteria is, and it's something I think Boston Consulting created, the, the concept of founder syndrome. So at the right time, knowing when to step out of the business uh, or step aside and bring in a professional CEO that can continue the growth cycle. But I also like to get out of a business as it's accelerating. That way you're minim minimising risk you find a buyer more easily because you leave something on the table for them to get a gain. Um, and it just means you're not greedy. So if you're greedy, I've seen it many times and I've done it with a couple of mine, you hang on to the last minute and then you end up down the wrong side of the curve and you end up with something that's worthless. Mm. Um, one of my businesses, we had an offer for a substantive amount of money. We thought we, you know, we three founders, we all thought we were worth a lot more. Um, 18 months later, we just shut the doors got nothing for it. So, wow. you know, you've always got to sell on a high as it's on the growth, yes. not uh, at the peak. It all comes down to timing and luck. And, you know, a lot of these business decisions, the one thing that I got from Yarra Valley, especially year 12, was that independence and the encouragement to try new things, try something different. And I remember, as, as weird as this sounds, year five, um, or was it prep five, year five, grade five, whatever it was back then, it was the first, my year was the first experimentation with this open learning plan where there were no structured classes. I don't know if it still continues or not, but it was, there were no formal classes. You did what you wanted to do. There were homework if you wanted to do homework. And it was really a case of if you wanted to do nothing that whole year, you could do nothing. And I found within weeks that I just needed more and more and more. So it created this drive within me to do stuff and this motivation and this process around there are no barriers at that very, very early age. Wow. And I love that. And and I love the courage of, of the school to say, we're going to try this and give it a go. And, and by the sounds of it, that that has been an experience that has 
led to a character in you or a desire in you to try to to just give it a go and and I guess there's a concept of a, of a, a minimal viable product when do you know it's time to to share that idea or share you know because sometimes I guess from an entrepreneurial perspective or at the moment our year nines are talking about passion and 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 trying to pursue their passion and and potentially that becomes a, a product or a service or a, even it might just be a hobby or an interest but there is a fear of having a great idea or at least believing you've got a great idea and wanting to hold that in because if somebody else hears my great idea they're going to pinch it and they're going to go and they're going to have success in it what do you what are your thoughts around idea generation Look, it's a balancing act, and ideation is is a process that often is done in teams. And I think ideation is a is not necessarily a good thing. That's where you get a team together and let's think up ideas and and sort of run them through or hackathons, those types of things. They're okay. They're a bit of fun, but they're certainly not what I'd call business uh, business innovation. I think if if you've got an idea, you know, all the stats show that single founders have a five times higher failure rate than two or three founders. Uh, it comes down to a particular personality type. So if someone's a sole founder, typically they're an unconscious incompetent. They don't take guidance. They don't listen to anyone. They do their own thing. They're very, very hard to advise and they make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, the last 20 years of research has shown that that's consistent. It's a consistent across multiple geographies. So when you have an innovation, a thought or an idea of a, of a concept, it's great to share with someone that you think is going to be aligned. And it's not necessarily aligned because they're a great friend. In fact, you know, one of my roles, uh, I invest in a lot of startups. And one of the things I find myself doing is counseling between the founders because they're fighting and arguing and one of them wants to leave and they've got different, you know, they've got different outlooks on life. One's married with one kid, one's not. So you've got this complete change of um, sort of attitudes. There's no alignment of vision. So it's important that when you're partnering with someone, you pick your partner based on what they can deliver and achieve for you, not someone you can control or not someone that is a great mate. It's got to be someone that complements your your skill set. Now, I, there's a couple of year nine schools that I go in and talk about the innovation cycle and how to do primary and secondary research and those sort of things. And, you know, once you've got an idea did you think, geez, wouldn't it be great if I could achieve this? And there are two good examples I use in that, uh, if you bear with me. Um, one is they wanted a pen that would write in space. And this is an actual case in NASA. They invested millions of dollars in working out how they could a pen to work in zero gravity. Um, they launched, and, and you'll remember that that was an old papermate pen that would write in space back in the late 90s, I think it was, the big campaign. Well, the Russians used a pencil and spent 12 cents. So, you know, it, it's one of those classic disasters. There's another case of a fellow that uh, I met that had spent and mortgaged his house on a reusable, a reheatable coffee cup, disposable coffee cup. So he complained he drank his coffee slowly. He liked it hot. So he wanted to design this exothermic reacting coffee cup that, you know, like those heat packs, you click a crystal, it crystallizes, creates an ex exothermic reaction, heats up. And he spent about 800000 on it. The problem was the coffee cups cost $11 each. So that's not exactly disposable. 
and the chemical that was used was highly toxic and it's between you and your coffee, ten, you know, one-tenth of a mill of cardboard. It's, it was just never going to work. So the most important facet is research. You've got this idea just this would be great. Have a look who else is doing it or how big the market is. Go back to research and ask people. You know, reach out to people. Have a look at what's happening. And that's the number one failure point of all startups is that there's no market need. Someone's come up with an idea in their isolated bubble, especially in Victoria at the moment, in their isolated bubble, and they've failed. You know, they've got all excited about the solution and forgotten to go back to principles and how big is that market demand. And they're the sorts of things that, you know, year 12, I remember Bluey was, was always go back to fundamentals, think about it, you know, don't think, oh, I know the answer to this problem. And it all came around the math side. I know the answer and race into it because if you started wrong, you'll end wrong. So it was go back and, and make sure that everything is structured on the way through. Um, and that was reinforced at computer science courses. You know, obviously programming languages require structure, modularization, all those sorts of things. So that was reinforced through probably three years ahead of other students that I was at with RMIT. Yes, yes. That's powerful stuff. I, I'm, there's so many things I want to ask you about, um, but I'm going to, to zero in on something that you, you mentioned before uh, a little bit about some of the trends of, of perhaps of failure are not bound by geographic location. In fact, the same mistakes are happened all over the place. And, but you've also mentioned that you yourself have had business in multiple different um, corners of the globe has that required travel of you or are you still based in Melbourne, Australia and you just run these businesses elsewhere? Or So I'm leading towards what's a place, a destination that you would recommend? Where, where would you say from a, um, let's say from a business perspective, where's a great place to go, but also from a maybe a, a holiday destination once upon a time we're going to be able to again, um, in terms of your experience of the globe? Uh, look, the businesses overseas, I spent uh, about a year and a half in Silicon Valley, a uh, year in New York, year in London, year and a half in Mal uh, Malaysia. You can't start a business in a foreign territory without immersing into it or with a partner that actually understands those those markets. Every, every market, even within Australia, the difference between selling in Melbourne and selling in Sydney to big corporates, there are subtle differences. Um, you know, there's nuances that you need to understand. Now, when you go international, they're even more severe. Um, interestingly enough, the most successful salespeople for large software companies in the US are ex-Australians. Australians are better at selling almost anything than the Americans. Um, you know, they were, they're in high demand. In terms of starting businesses, I look at jurisdictions that suit the product I'm selling. So I had a company that did mobile marketing initiatives, advertising, etc. So New York's a logical market. Um, I've got another, had a tech business that was a wearable device. So San Francisco is the logical place. Um, there's another business in London because I was doing a type of derivatives trading that was most active in London. Um, Malaysia was an opportunistic business and that's non-tech, but I was over there working on the information super corridor with uh, Mahatia and Mahatia's son as part of one of my startups. And so I was pretty embedded there. I was traveling 
two weeks there, one week back in Australia, two weeks there, etc. And just the people I met, we ended up starting a business. We won a contract with TV8 out of Hong Kong to broker entertainers into Genting Casino. And that's just been up and running for a long time, completely unrelated to anything else. It was pure opportunism that we knew the right parties to uh, facilitate the contracts. Um, and that's still running these days. Uh, but every market has its own nuances. I find uh, Tel Aviv fascinating for tech and for tech startups. And they have an attitude that we need to adopt here in Australia, which is go global or go home. So our domestic market's too small to sustain anything. But Tel Aviv has more venture capital, private equity and general funding available than any other place on the globe. And yet none of it is for local. It's always a Tel Aviv business going global and they go global fast. And that's what we need to learn a little bit about is that we need to certainly prove and validate models in Australia, but then go global, go global quickly. I mean, there's always exceptions to that. You know, if, you, if you're selling a particular building material or something that's relevant, you could make a fantastic living just domestically. But generally in tech or med tech, um, go global, go fast. And if med tech, you'd go to Boston. Uh, if it's research and analyst uh, statistics, you'd probably go to Austin, uh, somewhere like that. Um, in terms of travel, I used to do a lot of Vegas. Um, I've got an apartment in San Francisco now, so I was there so often. Uh, fantastic places, but my favourite's Italy, anywhere around Italy. Mm. Um, you know, in terms of holiday, not work. Yes. Um, Unfortunately, you probably won't be back there for a while. No, no, a long while. So I think the opportunities at the moment, and what's exciting, and I was trying to explain this to some MBA students that were very disheartened because their international travel's cancelled, the whole world's gone topsy-turvy and they felt like they're highly disadvantaged coming at the back end. But in fact, they're in the best position. It's a bit like year 12 and 11 students now is that they're experiencing something that's one in a lifetime type of event. It's actually changed. It's almost like the industrialization, uh, in, you know, changes to the way the economy works that, you know, I make one-on-one -on -one phone calls now via Zoom. I would never have done that in the past. I'm very comfortable with using Zoom and getting used to reading body language that way, etc. It's nowhere near replaces face-to-face, -face, but the world is a different place for the next two years minimum. So these MBA students have a great opportunity to help major organisations and small companies adapt to the new COVID or the new normal, I should say, um, you know, and, and work through how are we going to become natural operators in what they terming COVID normal. And I think that opportunity will show a real leadership. There are so many people, a lot of my generation, that just can't adapt. They're finding the technology challenging. They're finding, you know, the small cracks in a company are turning into chasms because of COVID. They can't manage their teams properly. So what it's opening up are all the challenges that can now be filled by COVID aware or COVID smart people. Um, and some fantastic opportunities around that. Mm. Which... <clears throat> is a perspective on our current situation and our current scenario that that I think really needs more airtime, isn't it? Because so much of it is doom and gloom. So much of it is um, disastrous. And I'm not discounting that for many people and, and lots of businesses, it has been a, a, a tumultuous time. It's been, it really has fractured 
both relationships and businesses and opportunities. But there's also the other side of that is that while in the disaster, there is also opportunities that come out of that. And and I guess that's what you're speaking to, that not not to say this is the worst time ever, but in fact, maybe this is the, the best time ever to try and start something, to try and serve someone, to try and be there to fill a gap, to fill a need. What can you give us, I don't know, maybe two or three suggestions as to where do you think the opportunities lie in terms of whether it be business or, or just because I, I talk to a number of people and they say, gee, I hope it doesn't go back to the way it was. It was so busy. This has been an opportunity to slow down, to have better connections and to, to maybe have better conversations. And, and so things have changed. And what are the things that we don't want to go back to? Like, what have we learned? What do you hope we've learned from the last, let's call it at least 12 months? Look, I, I think the, the the lessons we've learned aren't as obvious as people think. I don't think we've understood life tech balance properly, um, and I don't think this assists it. In fact, I, you know, I've had the reverse experience is that now that I don't feel guilty not going out and catching up with people, now that I don't feel guilty working on a weekend, I'm working seven days a week and in three different time zones over two sort of eight-hour 10-hour blocks, and I'm getting a huge amount of work done. I'm, every time I see COVID numbers going up, apart from the, these, you know, the critical ones, but every time I see them going up, I think, yep, fantastic, because it's giving me this opportunity to create new opportunities, if, if you like. What it's also taught people, though, I think, is that uh, f- the fragility, I guess, of the economy, the fragility of employment and business and that you can't sit back when something happens and go, oh, poor me, poor me, let's have a handout. You know, the government have done well to, to protect, I think, the markets. But some examples of that is a friend of mine's a builder and obviously a small, uh, small builder. And he basically for the last, what is it now, 11 or 12 weeks uh, or even more, 14 weeks, hasn't been able to work at all. So instead of him sitting there and just taking JobKeeper and complaining and whatnot, he basically emptied his garage and he started building prefab component furniture so and walls. So he knows that when he goes in to build a house, he's got seven internal walls, etc. So he's built all these prefab corners, all these prefab, you know, metre and a half wide walls so he can just clip them together. His next three houses will be built in record time. So he's invested that time in creating some innovative construction technologies. Um, there's other people that, uh, fellow I know that had a restaurant, um, obviously no traffic inside. So he gutted the restaurant, put two more commercial kitchens in, and he's now got seven virtual restaurants on Uber Eats, all from the one premises, and he'll never reopen. He's, he's basically uh, painted the windows, it's highly profitable and you'll stay in that mode. Now, the only thing I've warned him about is that the drop in home delivery um, might occur, but for him, it's not a problem. I mean, he's earning at a phenomenal rate because he just, instead of sitting back whinging, he basically gutted the inside and set up two new commercial kitchens. One of the businesses I launched uh, a couple of months ago is one that's to do with home workplace safety. So one of the big challenges with all the companies is that if you're working from home and it's now mandated, that becomes an extension to your workplace. 
So if you stub your toe or if you slip and spill your coffee, that's a workplace claim, uh, work cover claim. Mm. So we developed a product which is about surveying, logging incidents, correct seating positions, chairs, partnerships with uh, retailers so that they could, uh, the companies could supply chairs. You also take photos and then it's an indemnity to the board because it's a director's liability. An indemnity to the board saying, you know, uh, if you followed all these procedures, you agree to all of this, you'll sit properly, you won't do this, you'll wear closed shoes, you know, you'll dress appropriately when you're at the desk, um, then you indemnify the board. And it's a lot more complex than that. But, you know, we looked at that. There was a rising level of articles in the newspaper back in sort of May timeframe, May, June, about work cover claims with white-collar workers. So blue-collar workers have work safety drummed into them, you know, on building sites, warehouses, um, manufacturing. They could probably quote and cite to you half the rules and regulations. White-collar workers don't even think it exists for them. So it created this whole new claims area of white-collar workers injuring themselves at home. There was a lady that slipped in the kitchen wearing uh, socks, broke her leg, made a work cover claim because she was going to get a coffee. So what this this does is it's, it mandates certain things that if you work at your desk, wear proper shoes, proper clothing, proper outfits, don't put your coffee near the computer, you know, the layout, the structure, the ergonomics, everything. Um, and it was, uh, so yeah, we launched that. Um, and so with every adversity, you've got to look for opportunity. Instead of, so there are those that watch it happen, and there's, you know, a number of these sort of cliches, but instead of just watching it happen, actually get on the crest of the wave and see if you can predict or take advantage of what's there. Mm. You know, and there's, there's an interesting cartoon I saw, which I still remember to this day, and it was around a tsunami five, six years ago, a big tsunami. I can't remember where it was. Um, but you've got this surfer sitting on the top of the tsunami, breaking the world's record for riding the largest wave for the longest time. And that's looking for opportunity in every adversity. Mm. And life throws you so much... Uh, uh, well, I know the right word, but I can't say it. Life throws you so many challenges all the time that getting, you know, moving forward all the time is the most important thing mentally. You know, you don't sit back and dwell on the, what could have been or should be, dwell on what can be. And that's such an important lesson. Mm. That's powerful. I, I feel like I'd like to pause, rewind <laughs> and listen back to that. And, and I suspect that there will be others, whether they're listening to this travelling in the car, they might be on the bus, and they might be exercising. There's just a wealth of knowledge and guidance in what you've just shared in terms of a an attitude and it's an approach and it's a perspective to bring into whatever situation because the life of an entrepreneur has the potential for some very high highs but in amongst that there's going to be some some things that don't work there's going to be some some you know you're going to hit the hit the deck and hit the deck really hard so in those moments talk a little bit about what it means to to fail is failure a word that you know, or is that actually something that you you don't? Oh no! I've I, out of those fourteen, I've had some monumental failures. I've been bankrupt twice, mm. um, you know. And and you touch on a couple of points: monumental highs as a startup, but there are more lows, and the transition can be within the same three minutes. So you get off the phone call from a customer who says they really like it, they want to buy it. Two minutes later, an investor rings up and says they've decided not to put the money in. 
So you go from this amazing high to this ridiculous low, and that happens within the same 10 minutes, within the same day. Um, and that's why a business partner is really important because riding or sharing those sorts of highs and lows never seem as bad when you're sharing it. And if you find yourself at the absolute bottom of the well, knowing that someone's sitting next to you and you're chatting away seems so much more comforting. It's the same with any type of distress or anxiety or those sort of things. It's, it's you know, again, a cliche, a problem shared is a problem halved, but that's that's very, very true in that, that context. Mm. Um, so the highs and lows will exist all the time as an entrepreneur and they exist through life, you know, suddenly... And they talk about managing five major life events, so a new job, new house, new car, relationship, and financial. Um, and if, you know, one of the things I always learn with employees that if they've got more than two of them occurring at the same time, that you really put your kid gloves around that, that employee and make sure that they're, they're okay because you pile on three or four of those and, you know, you've got some real problem areas. Mm-hmm. And learning to deal with that as an entrepreneur, you know, I've had uh, some horrible disasters, absolutely horrible disasters. And all in one short period of time, there was, um, you know, I had some uh, relationship issues. I was running a public company that I put into liquidation at the same time, uh, you know, having to move out of the house um, and then financial challenges all within the same month. Um, and I learned a lot of very, very valuable lessons from a you know very uh, trusted and caring mentor at the time, or still is, um, about compartmentalising. And so, as a startup or an entrepreneur, even when you're at uni, you know you go to one class and it's fantastic. Um, and even at school, you know you remember someone says one of your friends says something to you, and you read between the lines and think, oh, they don't like you anymore. Mm. And that sounds like you know a bit of school uh, schoolyard games, but that happens in business. So, you know, there's a circumstance at one of my companies at the moment where there's eight or nine staff and one of them, for some reasons, feels that they're in the outer because someone made a comment, someone else made a comment and automatically they suspect they're ganging up on this other third person and it's it happens all the time in, in every circumstance and being able to deal and manage that emotionally and uh, almost logically is a key facet. So at the moment, for example, you know, invested in seven businesses, I'm running one, I'm guiding two others, I'm raising capital for a third, and I've got a lot of other challenges going on as well. And so that ability to compartmentalise what you're doing in your life is so important. Um, And, you know, that's where I use tools like BrainTap, which has been phenomenal. You know, it's a combination of light, sound and everything else for meditation. And it's not full-on meditation. I don't, you know, chant in a corner or anything like that. But it's that that solace and being able to take all the negatives, which tend to be horizontal, over your activities, which are vertical. So if you've got one negative, it affects everything. So I take all those horizontals and I make them verticals. So if I've got troubles with one company, I'll deal with it for an hour. If it gets dealt with or I'm waiting, then I compartmentalise and I can switch mindsets very quickly and easily now to a positive with another company. And then I switch to dealing with, you know, a finance issue. Then I switch to my trading issue. And being able to compartmentalise yourself is so important to manage stress, manage the highs and lows, um, manage people. Um, and, you know, some, I think I got a lot of that from year 12 in terms of managing, you know, just being able to say, right, now I'm doing applied maths. Now I'm doing this subject. And now I've got to look at 
how I get to sport in the morning or how I do this and compartmentalizing is, is critical. And I agree with you that sometimes students wonder when will I ever need this information? When will I ne- ever need the skills to be able to do? I'm going to, you know, whether it be trigonometry or know what adjectives are or, or know how to do such and such an experiment. But but perhaps what you're suggesting is that don't necessarily look at the content that you're trying to learn, but look at look at the whole process and all of the things that you're learning just by striving to be your best during those, let's say, the VCE, the year 11, year 12, when there are high demands, high expectations, and the feeling of high pressure, it's not, in terms of the lifelong journey, it's not necessarily this formula or that um, that style of doing something, but it's more the, the coping strategies and the organisational mechanisms that you can apply they are the ones that are going to see you forward into the future. That, and that's exactly it. You know, a builder doesn't learn to build a, a one-bedroom apartment. They learn to build. And so school and especially university is not there to teach you how to program in COBOL or Fortran. It is to teach you the principles of how to program. Uh, it's the same with, you know, year 11 and 12. It's not to teach you necessarily, you know, uh, kind of remember any of the language in the math side but you know it's not to teach you formulas or anything else it's to teach you the principal foundations and structures and frameworks that you can use to solve future problems mm. so you know i learned to program at uni in cobol fortran and pl1 i i think if i mentioned that to any of my technical staff now they'd look at me and think they've never heard of them and it's not that I can't learn to program in the new stuff because I've got all the frameworks and understandings. And, you know, just because a builder learns on a two-storey, you know, maybe a two-bedroom home doesn't mean he can't build a skyscraper or it doesn't mean he can't build a three-bedroom home or a five-bedroom home. You know, it's the, it's the theory and the principles of solving problems. Um, and I think that's what I got most out of year 12 and certainly university. Um, there was a lecturer at university that kept saying, we're not here to teach you anything specific. We're to teach you how to learn yes. yep. and what resources to learn with. Yes. Joe, there's, there's so much that uh, I want to keep talking and keep exploring with you. But what I'd like to do now, if, if we could transition into uh, a part of the conversation that, that I like to call the lightning round, where I'm going to throw a couple of ideas or concepts or, or maybe um, experiences of your past that some of which will be easily recalled and some, you know, might take a sentence or two to describe to me or to explain, but um, strap yourself in for the lightning round. Joe Linney Barber from the class of 1981. When you were at Yarra Valley Grammar, what house were you in? Plumber. And were plumber any good back in your day? No. (laughs) There would be some who argue that that things haven't changed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Tell me if you can recall what was uh, something that we would commonly find in your lunchbox. Uh, nothing, because I always bought it from the tuck shop. Oh, and what was your go-to? What was uh, a popular thing in those days? I think it was a sausage roll and one of those frozen triangles and a donut, yes. which probably explains my current uh, COVID belly. <laughs> Uh, ice donut, jam donut, pink or chocolate? Jam, jam, jam donut. Jam donut, nice. Um, I wonder if you can uh, recall or t- uh, share with us, how did you travel to school? Where, where was home and how did you get to school? 
Um, my father would drive us in the morning because there were four of us, would drive us in the morning and mother would pick us up in the afternoons. Mm. And do you recall who the school captain was in your year 12? No idea. Okay, I'm going to look that up and I'm going to add it into yeah. our uh, to our notes. What was your first car? It was a uh, Ford Cortina. Oh, yes. Yes. Did you drive to school? No, no, no. I um, I was actually young at school, so I didn't turn 18 until February the following year. Okay, yes, yep. So I was, uh, yeah, late. If you had to choose between uh, school athletics or school swimming, what would be your choice? Uh, the school bush and hide. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing cross country and you sort of take a, a bit of a left turn and you, you duck down. I don't think I ever completed a single cross country properly. <laughs> I wonder, is there a piece of work that you were part of, whether it's an essay that you had to submit time and time again or a, a maths test that you studied really hard for or, or maybe it's, it's a, a program that you, you wrote, a, a piece of work that you're particularly proud of that you can remember? Look, there's nothing specific, but interesting enough, uh, I've just relocated to uh, Yarraville and unpacking a box, I found there were 18 school Yarra Valley School Awards that I'd won over the years, uh, academic and social. One was academic, one was social, contribution or social, something or other. And uh, yeah, I was quite proud of those. Um, you know, which was uh, interesting. I look. I enjoyed my cricket. Um, was pleased with the outcomes and the results um, with that. But uh, there's no scholastic thing. One scholastic thing. There are there are some funny ones. Like I remember in year six doing the violin, um, and I was probably not the sort that you'd find behind a violin. And my father asked me why, and I said because it was free. So I was offered free for a term, and I thought something for free. I'm going to give it a go, and I was hopeless. <laughs> So, you know, it's, uh, that's a vivid memory. Um, we didn't have a swimming pool so at that stage, so swimming wasn't big. Athletics was big, and the only thing I could worry about was the shot put and the, even the discus, so, you know, I just didn't enjoy. Yeah, yeah. What does success mean to you? Different things now. I think success changes and morphs. I think as soon as you have kids, success is something very, very different to what it used to be. Um, success to me at the time was being financially independent when I first left school. Um, you know, I moved uh, at uni, I moved two or three times, had uh, different housemates and those sorts of things, and being able to enjoy myself. So uh, when I did get married, and I got married quite young, we did a huge amount of travelling. Um, so working hard and uh, building some financial stability was not about assets. It was about empowering us to, you know, we'd been around Europe, I think, four times. We'd been to the US uh, eight or nine. Um, the kids before they were eight had both been to uh, Disneyland three or four times. Um, we'd get back and we'd almost have no money left and we'd work for another three, four, five months, build up and spend it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, success is about a happy family. Um, successful kids um, and, you know, looking after the people around you, the friends and, and those sorts of things and being there for people. Mm. If you invited me over for dinner and you were the chef, what would you cook up? What's your specialty? What's your go-to meal? 
Uber Eats. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I've seriously. I don't think I've cooked ever. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not coming. Yeah, no, I don't even do barbecues well. I just, uh, uh, yeah, don't have an aptitude for it at all. All right, well, let's say that uh, restaurants have opened again and you've invited three people from any time, any era, any nationality, three people to come and sit with you around the table. Who who would you like to have a conversation with? Uh, Bill Gates, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, a very controversial one would be uh, Stalin just to understand the political issues and the political side, and Peter Credlin, mm. I would find uh, quite fascinating. Mm. Very good. And and imagine that conversation with those characters in the room together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've got a lot of interest in that sort of politics and, and uh, debate and discussion and those sort of things. I'd never get into politics. I think it's, uh, it's, it's the wrong field, but I find it fascinating. Yes. Is there a book or a documentary or a movie that uh, that you would recommend and, and why? Probably the most memorable one is a book called Maverick from Ricardo Semler and it's about a Brazilian company that I think it was back in the 60s or 70s. So it's a, it's a true story about this fellow Ricardo Semler who completely turned managing businesses, large businesses and staff cohorts on its head and right down to things like encouraging staff to do their own reviews. And we tried this at one of our business. So uh, my partner and I, we had 70 odd staff. We both fell in love with Ricardo Semler. So we said, all the staff can do their own review and you tell us what salary you think you're worth. And we'll either say, yes, we can afford it or no, you need to go. So we're not here to judge how much you're worth. You judge how much you think you're worth. And if we can afford it, we'll pay it. If not, and we had to let one person go who was probably one of our better people. Mm. We had to stick to our guns. But his management principles, it's a very easy book to read. It's very short. It's not one of these theory-based books. It's actually been written by Ricardo himself. And it is such a good principle of how to treat people, treat staff, transparency, building culture, um, building openness, trustworthiness, and integrity. And, you know, integrity, I think, is the, uh, I've learned very quickly, integrity is the number one thing. You know, you, your integrity will last on your headstone forever, whereas the money you make and the deals you do and those you manipulate, th- that disappears instantly. Mm. It's the integrity that people recall. Mm. Lavavi Oculus, it's our school motto. Do you recall what that means and what does it mean? Well, I could actually give you a very good spin on what I felt it meant, but in reality, I don't even remember it. Okay. I do. I do. In fact, if you'd asked me what our school motto was, I would have been able to quote it and cite it. But its impact on me, nothing. Okay. Okay. Uh, but if I reflect on what I've been saying, it probably, whether it had an impact or not, it certainly parallels what I do, which is about lift up. You know, don't look at your feet. Um, lift up and think visionary. Think innovation. Think. You know, go for the clouds. Mm. You know, it's not about looking down at your feet and just stumbling along a path that you don't know the destination for. So I could create this amazing story about how it is relevant, but really it didn't have much impact, I don't think. Joe, you've been incredibly generous with your time and and taking us through some stories and some of your adventures and and your perspective on life, and and I I really appreciate it. I've just got one or two final questions for you, and and one of them is... um, 
part of your role as an entrepreneur is to solve problems. To the intention is to help somebody else. At Yarra, we pride ourselves on seeking to lift our eyes, to look out, and to see how can we help others, both those in our classroom, but also those beyond the gates. Where does that contribution to others fit in your life? And, and is that something that, that you're proud of, that you are actively involved in? Or is it something that, you know, for now, for this season is is sort of, you know, it, it's beyond your capacity right now? Oh, no, uh, it's, it's been an important facet of my life for a long time. So, you know, I was on the board of Variety Charity, which is a volunteer board for, for quite a number of years. Um, I contribute my time at the moment to a number of accelerators and incubators, um, I go to a number of schools and, you know, talk about entrepreneurialism and that sort of thing to typically year nine students as that sort of preparatory year to 11 and 12. Um, and it's all for free. I do all that for free. I also am a big believer in contributing back to these sorts of programs. So I donate, uh, you know, amounts to, to different people, even though I wouldn't regard myself as wealthy. Enough's enough. Mm. You know, the you know people say when is enough enough. Well, it's if I'm not worried about how I'm going to pay the rent next week, then that's enough. Yeah, that's a great you attitude. Know, really, I appreciate that. And 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 you're right. You know, we 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 are we are in the you know the top one percent of um, wealth in in the world, and you know we're we're doing just fine actually. Yeah, and I look. I'm I've got things I crave. You know, I'm an adrenaline junkie. You know, I've I've just picked up a brand new Porsche and you know, go nuts in that, and I've had 10 of them. So, but, you know, things like when I first got divorced on Christmas Day, I'd go down to the soup kitchens, I'd help down there, and I'd end up driving around Albert Park with kids in my car for like seven hours, you know, giving them a, a ride in the car around Albert Park. Giving back is so important. Um, and that's why I was doing this advisory work. You know, it's about advising startups or entrepreneurs about how to take the next step, where to go, leverage my networks globally, legend leverage the domestic networks. Giving back is the number one thing. And it's very selfish to give back because you feel great about doing it. I love that. You know, so it, it's it, a good, it is a selfish behaviour. Good reason to do it, though, a good reason. And my last question for you is, what what is the question that you really wished I had have asked you? What's the question that you are looking forward to that, that I've forgotten or I haven't asked you? And then answer the question, please. Yeah, well, the, the, the one question I was dreading, which is now sort of dobbing myself in, was would I send my kids to Yarra Valley? Ah, okay. And I've had, you know, two boys, one of them, uh, well, one's 23, one, oh, 24 and one's 21, but we sent them to another school and that was pure geography-based. We lived, we had a big house in Camberwell and Ring was, was just too far. But, um, you know, the thing, I've got very, very strong passion for... Yarra Valley and I find when I go out to Caulfield or some of the other schools uh, where friends are if I'm uh, doing some work at Cary and I see the Yarra Valley kids I'm always supporting the Yarra Valley kids you know it's um and I think it's that and it may have changed but you know in, in my day it was that ability to do anything and that that immersion in the computing and then we're playing all sorts of sports and just the diversity and I think education's education in some respects, but what Yarra Valley Gate gives you is that opportunity to try so many things. You know, I tried kayaking and, you know, on the school camps, we did the survival camp and all sorts of crazy things. And I could try one of 30 different sports if I wanted to, the the range of academic, there's the, the theater, there's the arts, I could do tennis. I mean, there was just, 
it was the ability to really sample everything life could give you and to pick your area instead of, I think, with traditional schooling, unfortunately, the academic might be just as strong. Teachers are, you know, good teachers everywhere, bad teachers everywhere. But it's that range and diversity of experiences. And, you know, the other thing I'm fond about is, and hopefully it's still there, is the deaf unit. You know, I remember we were always told that it was the first school in, in the country to do it and it was great interacting with the deaf kids and it gives you a real appreciation for, uh, you know, diversity being and inclusion being so important. Mm. And I remember that, you know, fondly about the school. Mm. Someone asked me about what school I went to. I usually say, they're the first, you know, Yarra Valley, first to have a deaf unit and massive ovals and sports program. Yes, yes. We do have a lot of grandparents who support their grandchildren coming to Yarra nowadays, yeah. and, and maybe that's an opportunity yeah. down the track. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not too soon, I hope. <laughs> Joe Lenny Barber from the class of 1981. It really has been a delight for me. It's been a real privilege to uh, share this conversation with you and to learn from you along the way, and I really appreciate the way that you go about your your role, your role in society and your role as a mentor to, to many, but also somebody who's willing to to keep pursuing new ideas and, and not, not necessarily taking unreasonable risks, but somebody who's prepared to do the work, do the research and then have a go at stuff. And, and I admire that enormously. I look forward to one day perhaps being able to... Um, well, I was going to say have dinner with you, but maybe let's have a have a cup of coffee and uh, go for a stroll or something like that. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see the school again. Actually, I was thinking about yes, that. You, you would be uh, very, very welcome, and I look forward to uh, perhaps being part of that uh, wander around with you. And uh, so many things I'd love to continue talking with you about. But thank you for being uh, generous with your storytelling and your time, but also your acknowledgement of so much of who you are and your way about things has been inspired by Yarra. And and that's that's part of the guts of what we're all about here. So for that, I thank you and I appreciate your contribution to the wider world, but certainly to Yarra. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's been my pleasure, Paul. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that all but wraps up another episode of Inspired by Yarra. And I hope you found this conversation with Joe Linney Barber from the class of 1981 fascinating. What a wealth of knowledge and experience and expertise and confidence and willingness to try and stretch and challenge himself and learn new things and just give it a go. If it is to be, it's up to me. Certainly somebody who has taken his journey into his own hands and not done it alone, but take an action and I admire that really appreciate Joe's perspective his insight and his experience that he shared with us along the way if you enjoyed this episode then we'd love you to share it to like it give us a rating give us a review it helps other people to stumble across it to find this podcast and we would love you to share it with somebody else who may have also been around that era when girls were just starting to be part of this school community, where technology was at a high and exploring sports was deeply encouraged as we continue to pursue and explore and stretch all of those same areas and more today. We'd love to encourage you to share, 
to let others know about this little community that we're building here on the podcast as well. And I hope you'll join us again next episode when we'll sit down with another Yog and see how they too have been inspired by Yarra. My name is Paul Joy and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra, I want to wish you another day today, a day of inspiration where you go out there with intentionality to make a positive impact in the world around you.